0: Our scripture reading today comes from Genesis chapter 6, Genesis 6, and we will be looking at verses 1 through 22. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men and they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above, and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh, in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind. Two of every kind will come with you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word again this day, we see your great judgments on the earth. but We also see your deliverance of a people for your name. This theme, which uh, we see over and over again throughout scripture, pray that by your spirit, you would prepare our hearts to receive this message, that we would See the fear of your judgment, but that we would also see the hope that we have in you and in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Evil has a way of pressing in on what is good. The things of the world and the flesh and the devil find a way to pressure and interfere and even to corrupt the things of God and his people. We don't have to look far to see in our day how the world and how the culture applies such pressure to God's church. I know, for instance, a man who, for the last 16 years, he's gone out onto the campus of the university where I attended, and he would set up a table in the student union, would share the gospel with the students at that university, but he recently was suspended. He recently lost his privileges to go on that campus. Uh, and has been threatened with being banned permanently. He's currently been banned for a year. What was his offense? What did he do? Well, he said that a man was a man. For that, he can no longer be at the university. This is just one example that's close to home for me, but all around us, the world seeks to impose its will and its ways on the people of God and to corrupt the people of God and the church's work in the world. We have a time of chaos and worship where people would much rather worship God according to their own designs than according to God's word. How many churches will close for one or both of the next two Lord's Days because of man-made holidays? I know of several. We look at our nation, we look at our government, we see the corruption in it. Simply speaking, the truth about God and the world he has made and what he requires of man will get you accused of every kind of evil, every kind of ism, every kind of phobia out there that is simply the harsh reality of the world in which we live. Now we can respond to this chaos and we can respond to this pressure of evil in various ways. One impulse might be to despair to think that things are really bad and that they're not going to get better. We can become anxious. We can begin to lose hope. Or on the other hand, we can take the approach of withdrawal because living in and engaging with this world is so difficult, we're just going to hide away from it. We're going to separate ourselves from the world and try to avoid it at every turn. We can forget about things like trying to reach the lost with the Word of God when we take such an inward-focused approach. But as the Bible tells us, there is nothing new under the sun. As we have been looking at these opening chapters of Genesis, we have seen the shaping of the world. We have seen the emergence of two lines, two seeds, two cities. The line that believes and worships God, the line of Seth, And then the line that rejects him, the line of Cain, the line of evil that puts this pressure onto the people of God. These two lines cannot stay so neatly divided. The world always puts its pressure on the city of God. That was true in the old world, just as it is now. And so we see in our text today, this corruption that seeps even into the people of God and what God purposes to do about it. For such great evil breaking forth on the earth, there must be judgment. God will only bear with man's sinfulness for so long. But all is not lost. God purposes through judgment to elect and save a people for his name. And really, this is a summary of all of Scripture, all of history after the fall. There is judgment on sin and unrighteousness but there is also God's gracious deliverance towards his people. This pattern, this paradigm of judgment and deliverance that we see all throughout Scripture, it is laid out very clearly and very precisely in Genesis 6 and the following chapters in this ordeal of Noah and the flood. So we will look at this coming judgment and the promised deliverance as we see it in chapter 6 in three points. First, we see condemnation in verses 1 through 7. We see great evil break forth on the earth, the kind of which God, being holy and righteous, cannot and will not overlook. He will take action. But second, we see God's condescension. Though the earth will incur judgment, rightly and justly, God, by grace, purposes to save a people through the coming calamity. We see this in verses 8 through 12. And then third and finally, we see a commission in verses 13 through 22. God gives to Noah a task by which this deliverance will come. So we have condemnation, condescension, and commission. So first we see condemnation in verses 1 through 7. We see in verses 1 and 2 this breaking forth of a great evil. On the earth. Now we see that man is multiplying on the earth as he was given a commission to do at creation. Despite the fallen sin, that part of dominion, that part of being made in the image of God carries on. But all is not well. We read in verse two that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now, a lot of speculation and a lot of strange theories have been made about what is going on in these verses. Some try to portray this as some sort of supernatural beings, angelic beings, that are intermingling, intermarrying with humans and producing hybrid offsprings. It's a... Popular theory, but I don't think it's a correct theory. I don't think it suits the rest of evidence of Scripture or even what we've been looking in, at in Genesis up to this point. Uh, one reason for that, if you've been with us in our adult Sunday school class, we've been working through the larger catechism, and we've recently been looking at the catechism's teaching concerning angels. And among the other things we have learned about angels we see what there is in Matthew twenty-two thirty about how angels don't reproduce. We read about our own glorified state, and it says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. So as glorified spirits, angels do not marry, they do not multiply. That would preclude any of these strange theories that people like to make here in Genesis 6. <clears throat> So what really is going on here regarding the sons of God and the daughters of man? I think in context of what we've seen with this emergence of the two lines and the two cities and the the two seeds, what is happening is that the men of the line of Seth begin to take wives from among the line of Cain. They are sons of God because they belong to the covenantal line, the faithful and worshiping line. But then this corruption comes, as it often does, through intermarriage. This is not a unique occurrence here. All throughout Scripture, we see condemnation of and corruption that proceeds from those that are within the people of God marrying people who are outside. It leads God's people to turn from God into idolatry and apostasy. This is why it is so vital for God's people to marry believers, to marry within the household of faith. This is why Paul cautions even new covenant believers in 2 Corinthians 6.14 against being yoked to unbelievers. There is nothing good that can come from it. So what I think is happening here in Genesis 6, this intermarriage, it is between the descendants of Cain and the descendants of Seth. And it seems to produce the predictable outcome corruption, and wickedness coming in among the people of God. And so for this, in verse 3, God pronounces a curse, though in a certain sense it is a gracious and generous curse. God knows of the wickedness in man, and he has purpose to bring it to an end, but he delays that judgment for 120 years. Now some think that this is where God limits the lifespan of a man to 120 years. However, after the Flood, while lifespans do begin to shorten from the 900 years or so that we've been seeing up to this point, it is still some time before man will live less than 120 years. More probably, God pronounced this judgment 120 years before the Flood. There is a time of possible repentance and reversal, though sadly, uh, for most, that will not come. Now, in verse 4, we also read that there were giants on the earth at this time. Now, again, people love to speculate into what these giants were and what they did. But that is really besides the point. While they existed, and while Scripture tells us they existed, it tells us not what we want to know about them, but what we need to know. We see that there were giants and mighty men that were born to these illicit relations between the sons of God and the daughters of men. They were men of renown in their time. They were well known. They were heroes and legends in the eyes of people. While we don't get much detail, it seems that they were mighty warriors who came from this intermarriage of the two lines. They were powerful and famous in the eyes of their fellow men. But God's assessment of the situation is very different. We see this in verse 5. While there was cultural development, as we saw last week, all the things like music and metalworking and animal tending and the sort that was developing in the line of Cain, and while we see even here further development, and now we have these mighty men, these great warriors, God looks at it and he sees wickedness. These mighty men in the sight of men were perpetuators of wickedness in the eyes of God. They probably followed in the steps of their forefather Lamech of the line of Cain. They were violent. They were threatening. They were abusive of the power and strength that they had and indifferent to the will of God. But what distinguishes them from Lamech is, is that they are the result of these intermarriages. It is not that the wickedness is new, but rather it is growing and it is spreading, and it has now infected and corrupted the line of God's people through these mixed marriages. But the wickedness is not limited just to the mighty men. God sees that this wickedness is pervasive to all mankind. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, the text says, there's nothing but evil and corruption, it seems, in the human race at this time. And in verse 6, we are told that the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Now, we need to be careful when we think about this idea of God being sorry. What we believe and confess about God is that he is spirit. He is without a body. He is without physical form. And also that he is immutable, so he does not change. And impassable, he is without passions. He is not changed by anything in creation. So how do we reconcile this to where we see here that God is sorry and that he is grieved? Well, God is spirit and God is unchangeable. We are limited in our ability to understand and comprehend him. And so the Bible often speaks to us about God in what is called the language of analogy. While God does not have emotions and he does not change in the same way we do, he is often described in ways like this to accommodate information about himself to our limited human understanding. In fact, John Calvin refers to this as baby talk, how because of our weakness and limitations, God must accommodate himself so minimally, so weakly, so that we as such minimal and weak creatures can have understanding of him. So while God does not change here, we see that the sinfulness of man in the days of Noah is so acute that it provokes the perfect justice and wrath of God against it. There is a change in the relationship between God and man, but it is brought by the change in man, this descent into sin and wickedness. And so in verse seven, God, the judge of all things, he declares a verdict and a sentence. I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds from the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Wickedness has increased to the point where judgment must come. Our world and our age Hates the idea of God's judgment. But God's judgment is a necessary outworking of his goodness and righteousness and holiness. God cannot look upon evil and leave it unpunished. Though by grace he may defer his judgment for a time, here he waits a whole 120 years, sin requires death and punishment, either of the sinner or of another in his place. God would have been just to destroy all of mankind at the moment of Adam's fall. God would be just to destroy all men in their sin, even now. But that would make for the end of the human race. We wouldn't be here right now talking about this. There is more to the story. And that brings us to our second point. After condemnation, we see condescension in verses 8 through 12. In verse 8 we see a shift from the evil of the world to something else. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now it must be clearly established at the beginning that this is not because Noah is inherently good. Noah is a fallen and sinful man, just like everyone else after Adam. It does not say that Noah earned anything from God, that he did meritorious works, was righteous before God on the virtue of who he was. No, Noah found grace. Noah received favor in the eyes of the Lord. We see in Noah a continuation of the covenant of grace, the same one that God had entered into with Adam and Eve in the garden after their fall in Genesis 3. God had promised that though sin and death had entered onto the earth, There was one who was coming who would undo what the fall had done. Our standards speak of this covenant of grace as one covenant in multiple administrations, beginning at the fall, continuing out throughout all the Old Testament, and then coming to its culmination in Christ. Well, the next administration of the covenant of grace that we see is this administration of it under Noah. Now chapter 7 of the Westminster Confession speaks of covenant as an act of voluntary divine condescension. So it is entirely at God's initiative. It is completely unmerited favor on the part of men. It's nothing we deserve, nothing we can ask for, nothing we can demand from God. Noah does not get chosen here because he is good or worthy. But God has mercy on him to deliver him and his family from this calamity. God condescends. He comes down to Noah to meet him. Now we get more information on Noah in the following verses. In verse 9, we see another one of these Toledo statements, an introduction to the book of generations of Noah. We read that Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Now, How does that work with what we have just read about Noah finding grace? Is he really perfect? Well, it is not that Noah is without sin, but Noah walked with God. He followed, worshipped, and served God and strived with sincerity to do what was righteous in God's sight. See, the only true righteousness that any of us fallen people can have is the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. That doesn't mean that our behavior or our good works are indifferent. But in comparison to the wickedness of his age, because he believed in God and because he acted according to God's word, Noah was something akin to perfect. He would have stood out for his upright living in a very wicked world. Though we are saved by grace, we are called to obey God in gratitude for what he has done for us. Next, we hear again of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Along with Noah and his wife, these three and their wives will be, out of God's grace, brought through the coming calamity. Noah and his family is seemingly the last worshipers of God that are left. They stand out in a very wicked and corrupt world. Verses 11 and 12, we see an indictment of the world. We see that it was corrupt before God, And filled with violence. As we look around in our day and see corruption and violence at every turn, we should recognize that we are not in unprecedented territory. This has all happened before and worse. But we should also recognize that God is not indifferent to corruption and violence in the world. Though He may withhold His wrath for a time, judgment does eventually come. And this is true now as it was then. Though God may not destroy the world again by a global flood or some other calamity, he can and does and has judged cities and nations and institutions and, of course, individuals for their corruption and violence. And one day there will be a worldwide judgment of the world through fire and all will stand before God's judgment seat and have to give an account. There comes a time where this opportunity for repentance gives way to the time for judgment. And that brings us to our final point. After condemnation and condescension, we come to a commission in verses 13 through 22. In light of this great violence and corruption on the earth, but also God's grace and favor to Noah and his family, God gives Noah a particular task to carry out for the preservation of life on the earth. So in verse 13, God declares that the time for judgment has come. The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, that is, through the violent people. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. The time for this uncontrolled violence and wickedness is at an end. But for Noah and his family, there is a plan of escape given. Make your, for yourself an ark of gopher wood. So Noah is commanded to make a large boat, a large seafaring vessel out of wood. Now we don't know exactly what kind of wood this gopher wood is, but whatever it was, it was big enough and of sufficient enough volume available to do this task for Noah to build this very large thing. It was to be sealed with pitch. Pitch is a sort of natural tar. It would keep water out. It would seal the boat and also hold the pieces of it together. But God also prescribes to Noah the dimensions of this ark. He says it is to be 300 cubits long, and a cubit is about 18 inches or so. And so you can do the math. This thing would be about 450 feet long. It would be longer than a football field. It's about 50 cubits, 75 feet wide, and about 30 cubits, or 45 feet tall. It would have had three decks, big enough for all the animals that would come on it. This is a huge boat, and Noah was to build it by hand. When I was in seminary in California, we would go down into the city of San Diego and down by the coast there, and we could see the shipyards in the bay there where they build all these huge ships, some military ships, some civilian ships, but all of them very large, mostly made out of metal. But to build these ships, they had all kinds of cranes and heavy machinery, all sorts of tools to make ships that Noah definitely would not have had. He probably, based on the geographical descriptions of where man settled after the fall, didn't even live near an ocean. You could imagine the scene. Noah starts building this huge boat in a landlocked area. God was asking him to do all of this by hand. It would have been a pretty serious test of faith and obedience for him to carry this out. But in verse 17, God tells Noah why he is to do this. God is bringing a flood, one big enough to submerge the whole world and to destroy all life that is on the earth. But starting in verse 18, God enters into a covenant with Noah. He and his family will go into the ark for the preservation of their lives. Furthermore, they are to bring two of each living creature with them so that they may repopulate the earth after. Now, it wasn't as though Noah had to be the first cowboy and go round up all of these animals. We see in verse 20, the two of every kind of animal will come to Noah to be kept alive. God, by his providence, will aid him in the task. He will bring the animals to him because God rules not only over people, but over all of the animals. So he will cause them to come to Noah for his purposes. And then Noah is also to gather food for the people and animals that will be aboard. You think about this all, it is a huge task. Not only does Noah have to build this ark, he has to make all the necessary preparations for his family and the animals to survive for what would be several months. What would you do if you were in this situation? You might be inclined to protest. That's an incredible amount of work. You'd probably start getting a lot of weird looks from your neighbors and questions when you started building a giant boat out in the middle of your field. But we read in verse 22 that without hesitation, Noah does all that God commands. He does this because he believes God, even when it's difficult and costly. Noah is a man of faith. And that faith works itself out in obedience to God's commands. In the book of Hebrews, we see the author of Hebrews teach us concerning Noah in chapter 11, verse 7. It says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. While Noah received grace from God, we see that his faith in God compelled him to do this action that would result in the temporal salvation of he and his family. We see not only that they were saved from death and the flood, we see that Noah was an heir of the righteousness according to faith. Noah received salvation. Now, what is this righteousness according to faith? Again, it is not as though we are saved by works. Noah didn't save himself, save his soul, by building this ark. Remember where we started. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This righteousness according to faith is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the only perfect and sinless man who ever lived and who suffered and died to pay the penalty for the sins of his people. Though Noah would have only known Christ through the types and the shadows, Noah himself was a type and shadow of Christ, one who would fulfill a given work for the salvation of the human race. While Noah was a type, we know about the anti-type, the fulfillment, who is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Redeemer and Mediator of the Covenant of Grace. This Son of God became a man, fulfilled the law perfectly, better than Noah, and better than any man had ever done. Noah's faith in God was faith in Christ who was to come, and it is in Christ and only in Christ that hope and life and salvation are found among men. This age, this world, just as in the age of Noah, is passing away with its sinful desires. But those who have faith, true living faith in Jesus Christ, will have life after this life that will be brought through death and judgment into everlasting life. That is the gospel, even proclaimed in the old world through Noah, so that we might see and hear and believe. For any of you here gathered today who may not believe in this gospel, it is offered to you once again this day. Repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus Christ for the righteousness of faith and eternal life. But for all who do know Christ today, may we all have the faith of Noah that works itself out in obedience, even if that obedience is costly and difficult. We may not have to build a giant boat But we live in a lost and dying world that is passing away in its sins. And so may we be faithful to do what God has called us to do in this world. May we strive to see others brought from death into life. May Noah's faith be our faith, and his God our God, and his Christ our Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you have given us. We thank you for the gospel, even as it was prefigured and foreshadowed to us in Noah in the old world, that just as Noah and his family were brought through judgment into life, your son Jesus Christ paid the penalty, bore the judgment for our sins, and was brought through to life. And because of that, brings us through death and judgment into eternal life. I pray that your spirit would apply this to our hearts, that it would kindle in us a love for you and a love for our neighbor and a desire to see our neighbors love you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.